From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Richard Waters. He is a writer, director, and editor for films such as In a Stranger's House. Welcome to the show, Richard. I'm so excited that you're here. <laughs> yeah. Hello. I'm so happy to be with you guys. And everyone, In a Stranger's House has found footage, so get the fuck ready for whatever's about to happen between me and <laughs> Like, it's just the get only, ready. It just is. only true horror genre, really, isn't it? <laughs> Um, yes, exactly. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's we, it. We're starting off on a high here. I was going to say, we're just like, we're going. We're starting off with a hot take and we're just fucking get, like, going for it. Well, before um, we do get to that hot take, though, <laughs> uh, let's, let's take it all the way back. How did you get introduced to horror, Richard? Um, yeah, I think it's just, well, probably too much TV. But um, no, I was <laughs> always fascinated by when you see any movies with that kind of creature effects or anything like that, that always kind of drew me in. And I think I'm the youngest in my family, so in particular, my brother was quite big into sci-fi stuff, and I know he hates it when I say it, but I think he's the one who really introduced me to horror stuff. That's what older brothers are for. <laughs> That's it. 
like uh but as well like my sister i remember she was obsessed with aliens and would watch it probably every day for uh, that probably went on for about a year I'm thinking, oh, that was oh, me. God. i mean i must have been about six or seven or eight or something like that when that was going on and i mean i definitely saw the other ones around the same time i was just always kind of really drawn in by the mainly the creature effect and things like that you know um those ones led on to things like um, poltergeist and gremlins and you know the real kind of cool kind of 80s ones because at that time uh, even at that point, it all felt like they were kind of slightly in the past. They were slightly kind of beyond what I was used to. So it was just something about that kind of slightly unknown, that kind of removed stage for me. And I just kind of kept chasing them up. You know, I mean, we'd have our Friday night movie rentals and I'd always be trying to get the kind of weirdest things I could. <laughs> now, I mean, again, being the youngest, I didn't exactly get, you know, my say all the times. And our video store was, you know, like a little mom and pop one, but I got as much as I could. So you, you kind of touched on something that like, oh, this is a question that we should be talking to people about. What What is your favorite? What was your favorite subgenre as a kid? Was it creature features? Because it kind of sounds like that's what kind of drew you in. Yeah, I kind of think I look at it like I was definitely obsessed with uh, Ghostbusters and mm -hmm. uh, Gremlins when I was a kid. And I mean, oh. even now, like I'm pretty still mad obsessed with them. Uh, and it's just definitely down to you just look at these things, especially because they're physical. You know, it feels like it could be something, especially when you're a kid, it's easier to suspend your disbelief and go you know, shit, that's something here. Like, is that thing going to be exploding in my white microwave? Well, and like, I think also, <laughs> I, I don't know what, what era or what decade you were growing up in, but I mean, back in like the 80s and 90s, a lot of the, the effect, the creatures were, you know, actually there, as opposed to now where a lot of them are, are you know, added in after the effect. And yeah. I do think as a kid, there's that tangible quality that you get. Oh, totally. Like, and I mean, even now, if I look back on some of the films from, like, I grew up, I was born in 88, so I kind of, mm -hmm. kind of, I guess the early 90s, mid 90s was kind of a real formative time for me. Right. Seeing some of the effects then, just kind of before CG was really accessible to a lot of places, you still had a lot of kind of dodgy puppetry and all. But even now, like, I'd still take a kind of a dodgy puppet effect than I would over a CG effect if me I can help it. Yeah. Two, me too. Any time, any day. <laughs> well, yeah, I even just think back, like um, probably around that time it was probably like X Files was mad, at, like around the place as well. Oh yeah, yeah. And I just remember, like, I can't remember if they did it. I think they probably did physically. They had this one episode where some kind of stretchy dude, who like you know he like stretched down someone's chimney and stuff like that, and I just yeah, things like that. They were just all so visceral. You know, I mean, especially for a kid, you know, it kind of really plays in your imagination. It just it feels so much more real. Like when even if it's a bad effect, even if it if it's just some physical effect in some way, it just really plays on you so well. Yeah, and, and we'll definitely be digging into that, I think, a little bit more later with uh, yep. the movie. Oh, yes. Shows. <laughs> Do you remember what your first horror movie was, horror movie experience was? I'm not too sure if I can remember my first. I mean, there's a few that I can kind of think of that must have come around the same time. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when you're a kid, like, I mean, you oh, know, yeah. it, it all might have happened within like two months, but it feels like it was two years. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but like I say, I remember my sister watching Aliens a lot. And I mean, that's more actiony. And even as a kid, I was never scared by that. But I remember then seeing like Alien and that one, because it was a good bit slower and all, definitely had a bit more tension to it. And that one kind of got under me a bit. But, is, but things, it was a lot of things that kind of really got under my skin or like kind of really stuck with me was uh, things that weren't so horror orientated. And it's... Uh, even now, like you look at some of these things, like did you ever see? Actually, I think you guys had an episode on it. Was um, Ernest Scared Stupid? I remember that like terrifying. Oh, we me. haven't done an episode on that. We haven't yet. done it yet, but it is on our it is on our list. It's on our our oh. to be talked about list. There's oh, someone shit. that wants to talk about it. <laughs> oh shit! Uh, just, ignore me. Ignore the man behind the curtain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, the, I mean the list is, is public out there on my on my letterbox. But yeah, no, it, it's something that we are going to be talking about. But um, yeah, no, Ernest Scared Stupid, and even. I think I rewatched it when I was in college. And I mean, it's an earnest movie, but at the same time, 
it's it is a kind of vicious the fact that it's just like these kids are turned into these little statuettes kind of out of nowhere mm-hmm. it's like pretty grisly stuff for a kid have you seen it mary beth i have not actually oh you're gonna be in oh. for a treat when we watch it it's so goopy <laughs> from what i remember it's so goopy <laughs> but even things like a lot of films that were kind of kid orientated or kind of easygoing or family films like do you remember look who's talking to there's like this one scene where like the two kids are talking about like they're get toilet training and one of them's a bit scared of the toilet and it's like what's like you know was it Mr. Pee Pee like bite your tuckers off? Oh yes, uh, I do remember that. <laughs> and I mean, I, I think I shared probably a stupid amount on Twitter. It's just I think it's Mel Brooks doing the voice of like this talking toilet, and it is horrifying. And I just remember as a kid, like I'd walk by like the toilet in my house. You'd look in, and you'd just be worried, like, is that going to start talking at me? Ugh. Well, you know, it's 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 funny because like I, I do think that the movies that are like not explicitly horror but have that one horrific scene in it are sometimes more effective than horror because you're not expecting it you know why would you expect something horrific in a in a talking babies movie isn't that kind of what that was about (laughs) yeah that's exactly talking to like Like, isn't that kind of like like (laughs) yeah like why would you expect there to be something horror in there (laughs) that's it and even just you said talking babies though and that freaks me out (laughs) i mean they like it's like you're hearing their thoughts right isn't that or yeah, that's it. It's been just so kind of long. I, I, over. I, I don't care. That shit's wacky. Anyway. <laughs> that's it. Like, what anyway. could kids say? They just, they just don't have the facilities to talk to us. They'd smack us around no. if they had the chance. <laughs> I don't want to know what's on their minds. <laughs> but as well, like, when I was a kid, um, like, we had, like, the, the uh, just a TV aerial that kind of picked up kind of two local stations. And then we kind of uh, got in some of the stations from the UK. There was, I think, four or five channels. But they came in all mad scrambled, you know, there'd be mm. massive distortion. You'd barely be able to make out what was on it. Yeah. I remember, I can't remember who told me, but someone told me about this film Candyman. And the big thing that mm. I took away from it was like, you know, he gives them candy with razor blades in it. And <laughs> I remember seeing like, we, we tried to watch, we had to give up on it because it was so shit signal. But I remember watching it and like coming across that scene. And because of how distorted and ugly the channel was, it was really hard to make out what was going on. But it's just like, I, I think that's a razor blade beside a piece of chocolate. And, I mean, obviously, now you look at that film, that's like really a very inconsequential part of the entire film. But I mean, that kind of thing just really gets into I mean, like, maybe that's part of my love of like things like found footage and all is that kind of grittiness, that kind of I'm not too sure what I'm looking at. I just if things are too clear, it's kind of too easy to kind of see the seams on things. Yeah. And so so now as an adult, what draws you to horror now? I think for me, like I'm just... I love a good story. I mean, I've always thought horror is kind of modern day fairy tales or like mm. modern day fables mm. in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, it's a good kind of way of looking at morality, putting people in challenges that they might maybe they wouldn't face every day or in day to day life and seeing what way they'd react to it. And, you know, I mean, on everyday life, you know, you can examine it in a lot of ways. But the second you put someone in some sort of peril, you know, an awful lot of the guises have to drop down. You kind of yeah. see who someone really is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When anyone has some sort of, like, even an emergency in your life or, you know, something you have to kind of have the adrenaline and rush through your body, you know, I mean, you learn an awful lot about yourself in those times, you know, are you someone who's going to like, you know, yeah. jump up and spring to action? Are you going to be someone who like, you know, curls away and or runs away from things, you know? Um, yeah. Are you going to be yeah. someone who is kind hearted? Are you going to be someone who's horrible? I just, I think films do a great job of kind of examining that and like say something like, I'm a huge fan of uh, George Romero's Day of the Dead. And I mm. love the fact that all the characters in that are just these flawed people. I don't think there's a single character in that who has a kind of a good motivation for things. And I mean, that's the best part is like, there's so many movies that kind of really play things as, you know, black and white, whereas it's everything is just about the greys, you know, everyone knows that like, you know, a good villain is someone who has a motivation that they truly believe in. Mm-hmm. What was the film? Um, was it was it Black Panther? 
um the villain or yeah no it was black panther the villain in that like i always i remember watching that thinking like you know he has a very good point you know i mean maybe the film should be kind of looking a little bit at the fact that we should be getting behind him a bit more yeah you know that <laughs> yeah. was one of the the first uh marvel movies that i saw and i saw the villain and was like oh this is actually this is doing something different than the traditional Marvel villain. I mean, yeah. they, Wait, that they tried really the, to. That was really the first Marvel movie that you saw? Me? No, no, no. It's the first one that I saw that like had like a villain. Oh. That... <laughs> Sorry, I was like, damn. No, it was the first okay. one I saw that actually had a villain that was like oh, doing sorry. something different than like the typical Marvel villain role. Where like they try to give him mm. these grandiose plans and try to make him seem like, well, maybe they're kind of like they have a point. But like that was the first and to be honest, the only time I've I've seen a Marvel movie where I th- where I thought that I was like, oh, this is actually a little bit morally gray. Yeah, and they don't really yeah. resolve it any in any way. You know, I mean, they just kind of no. push it towards that he's the bad guy towards the end. But at the same time, they never really resolve the fact that he did have a very strong point. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the kind of things that. It, sorry, yeah, it, back to the question <laughs> in horror. Like that's the kind of thing that just really kind of fascinates me. It's kind of one of those genres that really allows you to open it up and put people in ugly places. I mean, you look at things like The Witch, where. I mean, I guess it's ugly yeah. from the outside with the family, but when the child disappears, just the way that they really start hammering down, you know, you see how the religion is brought out and really kind of persecutes the daughter and all oh, yeah. things like that. It's yeah. just, I think they really kind of force you to kind of look inwards on yourself, you know, maybe ask questions that are uncomfortable to ask, but ask them in ways to feel safe to ask them. Yeah. But, you know, I do a lot of writing and things like that. And, you know, you're always kind of trying to find these parts of your brain that's kind of look into something that's maybe a bit, you maybe wouldn't want to look into otherwise, you know, I mean, especially if you're writing horror things, you're going to look at horror elements, you're going to look at the kind of darker side of things. Most screenwriters will say, like, you know, if anyone ever looks up their search history, they're screwed, but uh, (laughs) it's just that kind of thing. It's really trying to get into the meat of the human condition, you know? And I think horror is probably the only one that really does, I mean, sci-fi can do a very good job of it as well, but, you know, the best sci-fi tends to be sci-fi horror as well, so. I agree with you there. So, you know, watching horror movies now as an adult, do you ever still feel that childhood fear in watching those kinds of movies? It's very rare. And I mean, like, you know, I mean, we're all mm-hmm. probably still chasing that dragon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every now and again, though, like, you know, some films will really get me like, and sometimes there'll be stupid little things that'll get me like um, digging up the marrow, at, like the Adam oh Green film. Oh my God. <gasps> I love digging up the marrow. <laughs> I know. It's absolutely great. And I've seen it so many times. Like I saw it on a big screen. I've got the Blu-ray. I've seen it. I watched it on streaming. I've seen it so many times. But there's this one scene where they're just standing there talking in the forest and then this little or in the park or whatever. And this one of the monsters just like runs by at their feet. And I don't know what it is, but every single time that just gets me. It just sends me yeah. off the deep end. But things like, I mean, I definitely know the kind of things that freak me out. I'm more, definitely a sort of a paranormal person. Like paranormal things kind of freak mm. me out a lot more. Like I'm not, a slasher thing doesn't really do, doesn't set me on edge at all. Say something like... um I'd go to uh, Fright Fest an awful lot because, you know, seeing films in an atmosphere of people like that and on a big screen is a very immersive experience, which is what you want with horror. An awful lot of times you're kind of shocked at the amount of things that don't really kind of get you. But then every now and again, something will get you. I'm leading up to saying it and I've forgotten the name of the film, but it's (laughs) it's the Argentinian film. It's on Shudder. Terrified? Terrified. Terrified. That is it. That that set me off so badly. Like yes. just watching it and like, you know, immediately at the beginning when you're just hearing the thumping, when you see what the thumping is, like just from that moment, the entire film had me like all the way. And so I guess when a film like it's so unpredictable, like, yeah, like, especially when you're writing things, writing movies and all that. And if you're presumably if you critique them, you probably see the patterns and story and all that an awful lot, too. But um, it can be hard to get immersed in it. So, okay, I have a question. And this is something I just thought of because I did this recently. So I don't usually watch 
horror movies like in the dark with headphones on. I'm usually watching them, mm. you know, on my TV or I'm watching them on my laptop with the lights on. Do you like how do you guys? And then like recently, I watched a movie with lights off and my head noise canceling headphones on, and I almost shit my pants. Like it's like a <laughs> whole other experience. I mean, the movie was also really tense, but it was like a whole other experience. And I'm wondering if how you guys usually watch horror movies, and if like that kind of adjustment from in the dark with headphones on is like a you know also kind of changes the experience for you for me absolutely that i mean that's how i watch all my movies anymore mm, okay whether it's like if i have like a screener that i have to plug my laptop into my tv for i will do that but i will watch i i have to <laughs> i have to watch it on my on my my tv and Recently, I've been using noise canceling headphones. Um, can you connect your headphones? This is like a shut it. It's a stupid question. So you can connect your headphones to the TV. I'm dumb. Yes, uh, if with um, like Apple TV, it has like Bluetooth in it. Uh... So like I connect it. So like I stream everything to my Apple TV. Or if I'm using my laptop, I can just do the HDMI out to my TV and then connect my headphones to my laptop. So the sounds coming wow. out. Wow, the future is learn. here. The future Learning is things. here. What about you, Learning Richard? Things. Do you? Yeah, um, normally I'll try and watch it on a, on a TV or whatever, but yeah. um, my wife wouldn't be hugely into watching horror films and also has to wake up early for working awful lot. So I'll find myself <laughs> on the phone with the headphones in under the cover. It's really like, you know, you always hear about kids <laughs> on like the with a book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, on the phone, man. Well, listen, That's you even better. Hold the phone up right against two inches from your face. It's like you're in a big screen. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, my David God. Lynch, he would not have a problem with this. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how that's how Christopher Nolan wants us all to watch Tenant. <laughs> that's it. But like um, recently as well, like and found footage is really good for this kind of thing because like that kind of jumpy footage really comes on mobile media and all that an awful lot. I watched Host on my phone. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I didn't think like I was going to think too much of it, but I just put it on headphones in under the covers, and holy shit! Oh my god, <laughs> I'm shocked I didn't like scream the house down and wake everyone up. It was absolutely yeah. terrifying. The best way to watch it, though, I like, you know, I guess you've got like, it's real sensory deprivation, you know, you can't, your hearing's blocked off with just the film, your sight's blocked off with like, all your blankets and shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, huh. it's true. So moving into the, the creative stuff. Um, <laughs> and at this point, I just feel like, Mary Beth, do you want to take over? <laughs> yeah. Well, before we like dive into found footage, and I know you've done other work, but I'm I'm probably just gonna pick your mind about found footage, Richard. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Can you can you um tell our listeners what In a Stranger's House is about? Yeah, so In a Stranger's House is okay. So listen, there was this footage and broken camera that was found in this recycling center in Ireland a couple of years ago, and the people got it. They got the footage together. And they went, and we went like, Jesus, that guy looks an awful lot like me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was of this guy who was house-sitting. It answers a, a classified dad to house-sit. And while he's house-sitting the place, strange things start to happen. As these things do, things get spooky. They sure fucking do. I'm absolutely terrible at log lines, but I think that probably nails it. Yeah. No, that nails it, I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I know that you've directed other films that aren't found footage. So what drew you to creating a film in this using this technique? Well, I've always, I've been mad into found footage forever, you know, I mean, I've always been a fan of things like Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity and uh, Cloverfield oh, yeah. and, um, or even back to Carnival Holocaust and stuff. So it was never something yeah. I didn't not want to do. Um, but does that work double negative? Anyway, um, but <laughs> more what came in was I was doing, I'd done my creative aspirations or whatever, I guess, are kind of, you know, I 
they're just kind of bizarre in a way. Like, you know, I started off by uh, producing a kind of David Lynch in Ireland kind of feature film that, you know, as a David Lynch in Ireland feature film got like no attention really. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but the star of that made a rom-com that uh, she asked me and my, at, the, at that time, uh, partner to uh, help out on. And then I ended up taking over as director on that. And um, that became like, that went quite successful for us to a degree. Like, um, now, I mean, I say, you know, it was on airlines and stuff like that. And we got invited over to America to a few festivals, which was, you know, I mean, more than we could have kind of wanted for it. So it was just a cool ride. I remember the guy who directed Sodium Party, which is the David Lynch-esque feature we did, uh, said to me that like this rom-com is probably what people are going to think of when they think of you now in terms of your filmography. And I was just like, Ugh, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> like, no, I, I don't have a thing against the film or whatever, but it's not really a representation of me, you know? Right. Um, so I was always trying to get things off the ground. And there was a lot of, you know, a lot of false starts, a lot of dead ends, like as things are with this industry, an awful lot of people leading you down ways that just kind of go nowhere and waste your time more than anything else and then i just i was doing like a helping a friend out by directing a little kind of tv pilot teaser for them and i just had this absolutely horrendous experience with one of the other crew members on it and it was just it just kind of broke me a little bit i just didn't the the want to make films with other people in that kind of way just really went away because i mean it's a lot of time and a lot of Mm. effort to do these things it just i just kind of felt broken i kind of shied away from it I, i lost my confidence with it all but then kind of around, it was definitely around September time, um, I, I was genuinely house-sitting in that house that's in, in a stranger's house. And I just, <laughs> I had the camera and I just thought like, and I mean, that's that's uh, my family house in the film. And it's, you know, it's not set dressed. I mean, that's kind of as the house comes along, you know? Um, so say like those creepy dolls that are in, and I know a lot of people kind of latch onto the creepy doll. Like, I mean, that's been what's in well, that that's, house all the way through. That my, is uh, what I latched onto because let me tell you, I I was when I was watching it, I messaged Mary Beth and I was like, the thing, okay, the thing I do like about found footage when it's something like like this is that if the person on screen is charismatic and does things that like I would do, it's it's really effective to pull you in. And so when the character turns around. And sees the doll, and the first thing out of his mouth is "fuck off." I was like, <laughs> I "This is me. Thank you. I am. I am. I am sold. You can. You, whatever else you're going to do in this movie, I am. I am on board with it." I know exactly. I was like, "Okay, cool. We're all on the same wavelength here. Like, fuck off. Like, knee jerk reaction." And it's just that telling would be the doll my response. Off. If I turn around and there's a creepy little doll staring at me, that would be literally the words that came out of my mouth. Fuck off. <laughs> but that's it. Like, I mean, I, that was the first thing I actually filmed for the film. Was I just I got in my head to try this thing and I think about a year before I'd done something similar because I was house sitting at that time as well and like the thing I did then was absolutely shit I didn't I never put it up anywhere or anything because it was absolutely atrocious but like I did this thing and I went like you know that actually worked as well as I could kind of want and it was kind of fun to do and I just kind of brainstormed with myself kind of came up with some ideas and I decided to set myself this challenge of like I can make this film now you know I can make a film in this house using the skills I have using making the kind of film that i would like to see and like to enjoy and kind of get immersed in and i think at the time i'd probably seen creep uh i'd definitely seen willow creek and i'm a huge i love those kind of i love that kind of real kind of found footage style i think for me my favorite kind of found footage is the ones that you know you kind of it's easy to get immersed and go like oh my god is this real whereas you know ones like maybe as above so below which is a good film but it could work just as well without being a fe- without being a found footage, really. Yeah. So that the, I will that hear no slander on that film's name. <laughs> <laughs> the movie's no, no, I know, I know what you mean, okay. especially because, like, 
I heard that, Terry. I mean, we can <laughs> talk like, about oh, that okay, later. I said but it being hurt. <laughs> we can uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. But no, it's such a it's such a high level of production value, and I yeah. think sometimes high production value does a disservice to found footage, in my opinion. Definitely, and I mean, I think of something like um, even just the like mainstream kind of access to all these things as well. I think of something like the Poughkeepsie or Poughkeepsie Poughkeepsie tapes. And oh, I remember the tapes. <laughs> when I first found out about that, like it hadn't been released. It was kind of very quiet about it. Mm. Um, and I ended up seeing it on YouTube and it was this kind of low rent version Ooh. of it. And it was just, it was the best way to watch it. Cause it's like, you know, is this a documentary about some sort of serial killer or something? Now I have the Blu-ray of it and I've watched the Blu-ray and you kind of, you're, because it's like a Blu-ray put out by a big company, you're a little bit more disjointed from it. Whereas when you watch yeah. it this way, it just feels like, Oh, oh, what's this? You know? It's the same for like, it's like, you know, your friend passing you a bootleg videotape or whatever, you know, what's going to be on that? I watched the Poughkeepsie tapes and I download, I downloaded it um, in a way that, yeah, um, in a particular <laughs> way. And I watched it that way, which also made it feel like, oh, God, God, yeah. did I just download like a snuff film? <laughs> like, what did I do? And also, like, I had heard of that movie, I think, in 2007 was when it was like coming yeah. out. And I was trying to find it for literal years because it had such a weird, tumultuous release history. Mm-hmm. So when oh. I fi- like the hype had built up, like I was finally going to find this like holy grail of like weird shit, and it 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 paid off. I will yeah. say, like it definitely lived up to the horrifying hype. What I was thinking about was okay. So I love the idea of found footage in this in this aspect of like watching a, um, like a crappy copy on YouTube or you know downloading it through nefarious ways or whatever the case may be, because it kind of reminds me of back being like a kid and finding like a VHS tape that mm. might not have a mark on it. You know, it might have something on it. It might have something scrawled in like, you know, yes. with felt tip marker on it that like, it's like, well, I'm going to put this in and it could be with well, the movie that you're expecting to watch, or it could be something different because someone taped over it. And so there's that sort of like kind of a little bit salacious, a little bit like dangerous feel to it that, um, I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked about this on the podcast a couple of times now where it's like, we don't necessarily get that feeling anymore because everything is so mass marketed and produced and yes. clean to the nth degree. So like when you find something like a car driving by my window, right. As I'm trying to give out some, some information, That's um, the scariest <laughs> shit of all time. I know it is when you, um, <laughs> When you find something like the Poughkeepsie or Poughkeepsie, however you say it, <laughs> tape, really annoying name. <laughs> it really is. Or like you watch something that that looks like it could have been filmed by some random person. It kind of that's the kind of stuff that like I, I find myself more pulled into when it comes to like found footage. I think because of that, I always think of things like the McPherson tapes, which I only actually watched recently for the first yeah. time. Like, yeah, like we saw that for the first time this year. What's that like? The first half hour of that is just like a birthday party or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, birthday party and the lights go out. You know. And that's what I love. I mean, that kind of fan footage draws you in because you don't really know, like, is this real? Is this going somewhere? Now, obviously, when the shit aliens show up, you know, it's kind of a bit different. But <laughs> that's not a normal birthday party in Ireland. <laughs> well, you guys don't have the little yeah. green men over. <laughs> I think you guys call them leprechauns. I'm not too sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so like when I like say with uh, in a stranger's house, like I, I like that kind of slow burn to a certain degree. So that's kind of the, the approach I went with that. And say again, things like Willow Creek has that because Willow Creek is, you know, it's supposed to basically be this tape from a camera that they just put onto a film. So literally you'll have take after take and a lot of things. You have like the half hour long scene in a tent where they're just listening to noise, that kind of thing. I mean, I think that's really immersive because then you're listening, you're watching, you're realistically trying to figure out, wait, what am I exactly seeing here? 
you know, it's a lot better than like a film. And again, like I love George Romero, but Diary of the Dead is a very like handholdy kind of film. It's, yeah, you know, it doesn't feel realistic, you know? No, it does not. Yeah. As you get older, you know, sometimes it can be harder to kind of be immersed in uh, horror films to a certain degree. Like that little bit of blurring the lines between reality and fiction kind of helps an awful lot, you know? And I mean, I yeah. guess it's a nicer way of doing it than having like the faces of death style, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, I just feel like so many, so many people who critique found footage say things like, oh, you can't see anything. Oh, nothing happens. It's boring. I don't think they come to found footage the same way that we do. I like, cause I, similar to you, Richard, I come to it with like, I love the build. I love kind of feeling like you're part of this family or this couple or this person and you're somehow getting sucked into their life. And yeah. it's really creepy in that way of like being a voyeur into someone else's like home videotapes and their own tapes. Um, and I think again, I, you know, I love paranormal activity one is obviously like very low budget, like low budget, like mm-hmm. done pretty. And, they go up in production value as they go along and we can have a hours long conversation about that. But I think because found footage is such a like relatively low budget technique, I think doing it in like a high quality way takes away from that reality, from that creepiness. Like I almost feel like watching a found footage movie on a big screen almost takes away from that. I mean like Blair Witch, probably not, but um, I just feel like watching things like Like Cloverfield and stuff like that. And I mean, I really liked Cloverfield too, but I just yeah. think these high production value CGI like, additions to found footage are not always like my go-to yeah, preferred I think style. the more money you see put into them as well, like, especially when they're going to be big theatrical releases, they're a lot more inclined to be a lot more like a normal studio film in terms of their beats and a script yeah. and stuff. So say, and yeah. sometimes you see it even for kind of more low budget things. So like Blackwell Ghost, I'm obsessed with those films. Like, like only oh saw them God, recently. Oh my God, Richard! I just watched the first two. Oh my god! I absolutely the first one is a genius film and like oh, isn't I, it? It just it's came out like so fucking good. <laughs> it just came out over in Ireland uh, just before Halloween, and I just I binged them all. It was the most fun. And I'm trying to explain to my wife like you know no no it's great. It's this guy and he's sitting there and just banging and he's just like you know <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, trying to explain. I don't know, but you get it. You get I it. love him though, but I love him. He's like such a. I was just actually on our our episode of little cuts they talk about blackwell ghost 2 and how he's such a personable like character though like he feels like a real person that is just like a dad like a dad figure and he definitely i think as it goes on like because uh, what was the fifth one came out there like and i guess because i watched them all in quick succession as well you see like um I, I think three four and five are really enjoyable they all kind of tie in together somewhat i thought that when i was watching i loved the first one i think that's probably gonna be my favorite of them full stop but as well, it's just so, it feels so realistic, even though it's, you know, he's edited it down to a T, it's very professionally done to a lot of areas, but it's, and so little actually happens, but what happens is just done so well, you feel like, yes! oh, what is this? I thought the second one maybe suffered a little bit from like, okay, I made a horror film the first time now, let's amp it up a little bit. You know, you see yeah. an awful lot of things that are going on, you know, you see things moving, furniture moving all. I don't know, maybe it's, I really have to look into this, because when I was a kid, I was like obsessed with ghosts and, you know, ghost hunting and all this kind of thing, and you know, is it real? Is it not real? And, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I've kind of got my, my feelings on that and I'm not really too driven to like search into those things, but I do know people who are mad into it. And in fact, actually tying it into the, in stranger's house, uh, weirdly, I got an email off someone, um, rel- uh, a couple of weeks ago and they were asking me like, where was this house that they wanted to, uh, they were part of this paranormal activity group and they wanted to <gasps> <laughs> check out the house and Holy check out the haunting, so they knew more of the history. 
So uh, I didn't know how to reply to that. I, I, you know? So <laughs> I, I, just I decided, like, explain to you, this is the work of fiction. <laughs> well, I decided, you know, the best answer is I don't know how to answer. So, and if I don't answer, then it's like at least it ties into what they believe. So, you know, best of both worlds. Um, well, and that's what's so cool about found footage too. Is like, I mean, I after watching so much of it, it's like wild that people buy that shit. Like, people really yeah. do see these movies and like that's real. And I love that. Like, it feels the authenticity that you can get with found footage is just absolutely amazing. And it's kind of cool to see people believe in it. So, like, throw their entire beliefs into it. Totally. So, it's just really cool. Because you mentioned paranormal activity. Um, and talking about, like, you know, say maybe when a film is not so well known. I remember when that started getting buzzed. I was in college and you, it wasn't in theaters yet. The only way to see it was uh, in America. You could demand it to your theaters. And, you know, I guess you get a certain amount of people prepay for your ticket and you go see it. But there was nothing like that where I was. And somehow I came across, you know, a copy fell off the back of a truck into my DVD player. Um, and, <laughs> but it was actually, it wasn't the theatrical version. It was like, um, it was a festival cut of it. Oh. And so I don't know if you, mm. you probably know, like the, the alternate ending where, and spoilers, for, well, actually not spoilers, because it's an alternate ending. But um, like uh, she, like they all go, they both go downstairs at the end. There's commotion. She kills him. She comes back up. She sits down by the bed and she's sitting there for like two days. The camera's recording her just speeds up. And then the cops come in. She gets up. A door slams. The cops get frightened. They shoot her. I know. Like, I always loved that ending because it felt like a more kind of a real ending compared, like tied in mm. with the rest of the film. But the film, it was a bit more, I've watched it a few times and compared it to the, the theatrical one. It's just a bit more rougher, a bit more raw. So it, I remember the time getting it like, is this, you know, I mean, there was kind of like with Blair Witch, it's like, you know, it's not, it's probably not real. But, you know, maybe it is. And it didn't help that when I watched yeah. it, I was like, you know, as a student, so we're in a student house, everyone else was gone out. I was in this place <laughs> watching a film. Like it was a stormy night, it, like, you know, on a street filled with junkies. It was just like the perfect way to watch a horror movie. Yep. That's how I watched it, too. Similar. Um, I watched it. I was in high school and I watched it. My mom wasn't home. So I snuck it and watched it in a particular way that <clears throat> is not paying for it. And I watched it because no one would go see it with me. And I watched it in the pitch black. Um, my mom wasn't home and, um, I didn't sleep for a week. So <laughs> <laughs> that'll teach <Whoops>. us. <laughs> um, okay. Just one more question. I know we should like move on to the other part of the podcast, but so was the production of In a Stranger's House, which is just all you, were you a one person production? That's team? what I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. So this is, um, that's it. It was a challenge. Like that was a challenge I set myself when I did it. Cause like I was saying, like I, I'd kind of, I'd burnt out on the idea of working with like other people basically. And, um, so I was just doing it. It was just me by myself. I think the majority of it was shot over like whatever that was, like three or four or five days. Um, I kind of like, I cracked what I was going to do for the entire film. I went, I did all these things. Whenever there's like kind of things that happen on camera that kind of go, and every, and I do read the reviews, which is a stupid thing to do, but every now and oh, again, God. you'll see people who will say like, oh yeah, you know, it's a stupid movie where it's him and his friend off camera throwing stuff around. It's like, no, no, no. Like this is me doing all like these mad camera tricks to try and hide all these things. Like the only other time there's anyone else involved in the film, there's, well, there's two other times. One of them is the woman at the beginning at the gate. And then she has a conversation with someone as well. And then there's the thing up the attic. Those are the only other times anyone else is involved at all in the film. And those wow. things were actually shot a year later because I'd done most of the film and there was a tiny little bit I needed to get. But then we had this like massive snowstorm. And when, and in Ireland, you don't get a huge amount of snow. So when this hit and it came away, all the trees and everything just looked completely different. So it didn't matter anything. I had to wait for another year to be able to get shots to match up with the greenery. But, um, 
yeah no so i did it all myself and i just kind of i knew that i could because i like you know again i've done other kind of films and i like i love found footage and that's the thing is you know when you do a narrative film you know there's a lot of sort of certain cinematic language whereas if you do in found footage you know it's all becomes very subjective you know you're the camera you're forcing people to look a certain way you know that's so it becomes like it's nice to be able to kind of do you move away from the doll you look back and it's gone you know i mean that kind of thing yeah. is kind of very fun because you know it it you you take the power out of people a bit you know the cinematic like contract is broken you know mm-hmm. for this like i took things like i'm a huge fan of um the robert wise's the haunting and i took an awful lot of influence from that idea of like you know noises in the house um but not necessarily yeah. seeing anything for it and then for like you know towards the end of the film there's like this it's basically like a 20 minute sequence of you know waking up hearing noises banging on the door and all this kind of thing running outside and coming back in and like you know everything like starts all the shit starts happening and all that chairs blocking doorways and stuff like that doors slamming shut and all but the fun thing for me was that like you know i mean that's one 20 minute sequence in the house but you know i mean that's actually made up of all these little parts that i just kind of planned where i was gonna like you know hide my edits to be able to kind of stop the camera put up this pile of chairs and you know turn the camera back on and turn around and you know go oh no there's chairs in the way but that's it like and i don't think you need to kind of have some huge kind of big production value to kind of have some of these big little thrills in it and then when i was going like you know again when i was doing it i also love a film that has like these kind of little creepy things going on like uh, mike flanagan did a lot of it in the haunting of hill house where you know there's all the people mm. standing around oh, yeah, in almost yeah, yeah. every shot like i've yeah. always been obsessed with that like um say like you know the woman in black has a lot of those or there's that one yeah. in, uh the conjuring where like the mom's walking through to the kitchen and there's just like a kid in all-time garb just standing there but you just don't notice him because of the way the camera moves like i'm obsessed with that kind of stuff so there's loads of that in the film and in fact someone on a uh, found footage facebook group was saying that they liked the film and all that and they were trying to find some of these hidden things like i specifically gave them a part of the film where there's one of them hidden in to be able to find and I know, I guess, I guess maybe I hit it too well because I think she couldn't see it because her TV colors were a weird way. Well, now I'm going to rewatch and look for all that stuff <laughs> because that's amazing. Okay. We have talked ad nauseum about found footage. Um, we should probably get to the movie that you brought today. <laughs> um, Richard, what movie are we talking about tonight? We are talking about Poltergeist 3. The ultimate skyscraper is having some problems. Well, we'll get those problems before they get us, right? With its heating. With its elevators. With its pools. Don't be alarmed. There's a logical explanation. Poltergeist 3. Rated PG-13. Woo! Okay. So physically attuned youngster Carol Ann is sent to live in Chicago. I know. Is sent to live in Chicago with her uncle Bruce and Aunt Pat. But that doesn't mean she's escaped the ghosts. When she starts experiencing terrifying visions, her school psychologist believes they're figments of her imagination. He's a dick. Um, But this becomes hard to believe when ghostly foes start inhabiting the mirrors in her relative's high-rise apartment. Okay, Richard. Tell us about this movie. Tell us about the first time you saw it, how old you were, what happened. Tell us your horror story. So again, it was kind of around that period of, I mean, I was probably something like seven or, yeah, seven or eight, six, seven, eight. And that's when I saw all things like Poltergeist as well. I remember seeing Poltergeist and being scared shitless by it. And then, of course, that meant I had to watch two and three as well. Of course. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think two is probably the reason why I never wanted to get braces. (laughs) (laughs) But then with three, like, it always stuck with me and... I remember what I must have only seen it once when I was a kid, 
but there was just these two scenes in particular that really, really stuck with me. And one of them is the puddle in the garage when Caroline's like standing on these hands, grab up and pull her in. And then, you know, Donna and Scott come down and try and pull her out of it. I guess maybe for a kid's mind, you know, kids run around and playing puddles and shit like that. And, you know, especially where I was, there was an awful lot of puddles and you kind of go like, oh shit, is there something going to reach up and grab me out of that now? Like that really stuck with me. And the other one that stuck with me that I think probably had even more of an effect on me because I was too young at the time to really understand it because the film confused the fuck mm. out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> um, it confused me as an adult, so <laughs> don't worry. We'll talk about that. <laughs> but there's this whole thing of in the film when Donna and Scott, they get like taken over to the other side. But you think that they've come back and yep. they're helping. But it turns out, no, they're not. They're actually, you know, spooky, uh, Donna and Scott. And the way it's revealed is they're like walking along back towards the apartment and they're only in the reflection in the mirror. They're not there in the real life. And then they, you know, badly ADR'd in is they thought we were real. <laughs> the ADR in this movie, there's a number of them and the moments always kill me. But okay, so I'm curious about this this second scene with Donna and, and Scott because I have my own experience with it. So I just, I want to know, you say that that's the scene that you remember the most. What did it kind of, what about it, I guess, kind of terrified you? I think what it was is because as a kid, I just didn't really understand what was going on. It's like, wait, no, they came back. Why were they okay. different? And then, you know, because she's the sister, she's supposed to be kind of, and they come initially, they seem like, you know, they're the, you know, the older, almost like older siblings, they should be protective and, you know, it should feel like a safe space. But then it's suddenly kind of on a dime, it changes and they're not. So, you know, suddenly my entire expectation as a kid, is like, wait, these ones who were protectors are suddenly, they're like the malevolent force. I think that that's what really got me. And I mean, I'm, I've been always fascinated with uh, the whole idea of like, you know, control and uncontrol and uh, like identity loss and things like that. I, I come back to that an awful lot where, you know, something is out of your control or something is in, in a way you don't expect. And I mean, I guess it comes back to the whole talk of, you know, the masks that people have and all. Mm-hmm. Maybe that one just did a good job of like, you know, you know who these characters are. You know, the film spends a good portion of time showing them goofing around, you know, like going into the store and getting booze and play, like, you know, having a laugh with their friends. <laughs> And then, you know, then suddenly it's like, oh, actually, shit, they just killed a man. <laughs> that scene, I, watching it as an adult, was really interesting because it's like the first time in a Poltergeist movie that a character is like violently murdered. Yeah, it's the entire film is a bit weird in general for a lot of firsts or a lot of uh, non-Poltergeisty kind of things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. Like, um, so, but also the the puddle scene, going back to that. So I can imagine how visceral that could be, like the idea of like puddles. Did did that ever affect you after watching the movie? Were you ever afraid of puddles or something? Like, I remember kind of steering clear of them or looking at them going, that's a portal to the ghost world. <laughs> so I'm just kind of curious if that, if that also affected you at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I mean, I don't think I had too much of like, you know, I, I mean, I, the logical part of my brain, even as a kid, would kind of go like, no, no. Like, I mean, that was just a movie and all. But what if, you know, and, you know, there's like where, especially back then, there was an awful lot of kind of crappy roads. So there's a lot of huge potholes or huge puddles in them. Mm -hmm. So you'd all like, you know, it wouldn't feel like it was out of the realm of possibility. And I mean, you know, when you're that age, you know, I mean, quicksand is a serious concern in your life, you know. So, I mean, why can't puddles follow suit? We just talked about that with quick, about quicksand with Princess Bride. Yeah, that's a, (laughs) that was a, that was a genuine fear. And and why not puddles? I mean, you know. The special effects in that scene, though, with the puddles is actually really, really good. I think even though yeah. like, you can kind of see the way it's like made now, I still oh, think yeah. it's an effective use, effective sequence. Yeah, definitely. And like the entire film, like, you know, the film itself is kind of shite, but the actual stuff with uh, the effects <laughs> and like an awful lot of 
uh, as it, especially as it gets to the second half of it, it does an awful lot of cool stuff. Like I was looking at it earlier on, and I was thinking that you know if if it took itself a little less serious, it probably would have been a hugely like fun, goofy eighties movie. Like you know, with all the crazy visual effect or crazy like creature effects and rubber hands and all. But you know, it's all the work with the mirrors. Like I don't know about you guys, but like when I saw it, especially as a kid, like you know, I mean, you know, mirrors are a bit weird enough because it's suddenly like, who's that person? Oh, oh, that's me. But, mm-hmm. you know, that film, Sunny Man's like, oh, oh, it's me. But, oh, wait, is it? And yeah. I don't know how much of it, like, maybe seeped in my brain. But there's this, there's a couple of times in it where, you know, you'll see people talking and then someone will, like, walk away and their reflection will wait a while and walk away afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's stuff, like, even now, like, you know, even as a whatever 30-something-year-old, I'll be you know, going into the bathroom and I'll, like, you know, okay, maybe don't make eye contact with the mirror in case it decides <laughs> not to make it back, you know? Right. I I, I think that's, like, a... I think I, I think there might be something like ingrained in us about about mirrors because of that because like I, I remember being terrified of of mirrors after this movie be, because like I was afraid that it was like actually gonna pull me into some spirit world. Mm. Well, you know the thing is like okay I've talked about this before but like I had a very overactive imagination as a kid. I grew up in Alaska uh, for like my first formative part of my young young childhood. So because of that, because of of the isolation of where I was at, and because I was an introvert, I I did a lot of like I, I played around a lot with like in my imagination world. Like it wasn't like I was like it's not like I had an invisible friend or whatever, but like I I definitely like would slay dragons with a sword or whatever. Like I was like creating these these fantasy worlds, and I've mentioned this on the podcast. I think with when we were talking about Salem's Lot about how I'd watch scary movies and I would use information from that as sort of like my arsenal to like fight them <laughs> if mm. they ever happen in the real world and so the scene that re- that when you're talking about that that um affected you as a kid for me it had a it it's the scene it's the one scene that i remember about this movie going into this movie i didn't remember anything about about this film except that the fake donna and the fake scott it's the crazy. only way i could tell that they were like not real is by squinching someone's face <laughs> Because that's what he does. Like after they have their makeup session, he like ah, yeah. grabs her cheek and like rips a chunk of it off. And I'm like, oh, that's how I can tell if someone is actually like a spirit them or if it's they're real. It's really kind of Scooby Doo, isn't it? You know, yeah, right? So I had this like I have this vivid memory of walking up to my parents after seeing this movie and like pinching their cheeks to make sure they oh were real. God. Because I was like, if I pinch and the skin comes off, I know they're fake. <laughs> I, I, that's that's Why? that's a very brave way. I just went the other way and went like, yeah, no. I mean, everyone is definitely an evil spirit, so I'm just going to steer clear. I mean, like, I I was I was prepared. Like, I was was went into these movies thinking, oh, this is going to give me ammunition. I know Freddy's weaknesses because I've seen all the movies, so I know how he's gonna. I know how to kill him if I if I need to. And now I know how to tell if this person is a ghost or not. Like, this is how my mind was working as a kid. <laughs> no, great. I, I, listen, you can't fault that logic, you know, <laughs> right? Oh man, I love it. it. Goes right on the resume, you know. Demon prepared. <laughs> yep, one hundred percent. Well, maybe that's why I don't get jobs because I always go in and I just squeeze their face and like they like, what the fuck are you doing? And then you know, skin still intact. All right, we're good. <laughs> well, they're good for me, but like off. I'm out the door. <laughs> yeah. So this is the first time you saw them, right, Mary Beth? Because you've only seen yes. the first one. I've only seen the first one, and the first one ruined my life. Um, mm-hmm. It was the it, we talked was the film I talked about when we first started the podcast. I think I saw that movie and then never wanted to experience anything like it again. (laughs) And also I had a, I have, I think I've talked about this a million times before and that like I was a a little shit and didn't really think franchises were 
worth watching. I just wanted to watch the first mm-hmm. one and like ignore the rest of them because there's no way they could be good. I have learned my lesson, everybody, as you guys know. This is not necessarily good, but no, this I was liked really it. like it was uh, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Look, it makes no sense. It's narratively kind of a garbage fire, but they do some really cool shit, and that redeems it a lot to me. Like, so, like a lot of the effects, and then the comedy is very strange in this movie too. Like, I, I know, I think Richard, you just you said this about like this could have been something very if they didn't take themselves so seriously. Like the comedy in the beginning. It's really funny. Like, they could have There's leaned moments. into that a little bit more. Like, think about it. Like, yeah, every now and again, you have these weird slapstick moments. Like, when Scott comes out of the pool, all frozen, and like, he fucking snots himself on a window. Like, you know? <laughs> oh my God. That actually made me jump, I will admit. And then, like, like, like Carol Ann's joking at the beginning about making toastums and making breakfast and, like, I don't a woman's know. entitled it, like, to change your mind. Right? Or, like, <laughs> like, there was just some really cute moments that I feel like. You're so declassé. <laughs> yes like like should have extended throughout the movie because those were the really endearing parts i think to me and like seeing her grow up all the funny characters kind of disappear halfway through you know i I didn't even realize you really left like it was like nancy allen and tom scarrett for an awful and i mean like they're madly watchable but jesus like they're boring their (laughs) characters are boring that's what i was so i was talking to terry about this i was like this feels like a movie that was an anthology film but not like did not mean to be an anthology film but it kind of is like it's presented like vignettes because the character, like the focus character changes so much. Yeah. Like it's jarring because it goes from Carol Ann to Donna to the parents. And I'm like, wait, whose story is this? Like I am very confused about who I'm supposed to be like really caring for and rooting for. That's it. And, and like- then like Zelda shows up for like two <laughs> seconds, who I love. Zelda Rubenstein, yeah. well, she really forever. Shows, she just kind of really shows up just to kind of have the name on the poster, doesn't she? Well, I do think that that sort of like kind legacy, of. that Poltergeist legacy, kind of like hurts this uh, movie mm-hmm. a little bit because there, there's like it feels almost like they have to have these moments, like they have to have Carol Ann getting sucked into something. <laughs> They have like to portal. have like, yeah, uh, this time it's like, like a puddle instead of the TV. But um, <laughs> so you have to have that. You have to have um, Tangina coming in and, and saying her mysticism. You have to have like, I mean, it was established in the second one, this this preacher Kane. You have to have him like come back because he was so successful in the second one. Like you, ha- it, mm. it's this mythology, I think, that it almost starts to like crumble on before we even – can get started i know that dr seaton's whole thing uh his whole thing and it is the fact that there's the whole massive gnosis kind of thing Ugh. and but it's such a weird thing it's like the amount of times people just really ignore something that's weird going on like when again like when people like you know the reflection walks away after the person's actually walked away or like you know carol ann like pops her head and says something to donna and then in real life pops her head and says something it's like would you not go oh, wait hold on there's something weird going on or when the fucking the hand picks up a coffee cup and throws that at a mirror and all <laughs> Like, yeah. Okay, these are a little bit more like on the nose, yes, but like I'm immediately thinking about how I have jokingly posted on Twitter twice now, once about how like I saw something in the doorway when I'm when I was sitting at my my computer desk and then I kind of did a double take and there's nothing there and I'm like ha ha there's a ghost or the time when like recordings show up on my phone at 2 in the morning <laughs> and like they're just these weird audio recordings. 
so and I'm just sort of laughing him off like ha 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 ha. So yeah, I think that like, obviously in the film, like if a fucking hand reached out of a, a desk and threw a, a, a fucking cup of coffee at the at the mirror, I, I'm pretty sure that I would probably be like, uh, there's something really fucked going on. Here. I would have noped the fuck out of there and gotten <laughs> a new job. Absolutely not. I do think there is a human proclivity to like have a distrust of that, whether we can take it to the same extreme that Dr. Seton does in the film or not is another, another yeah, question. Like, I mean, is he trying to help her or is he just kind of like, oh my God, a little shit. Is that all he's trying to do? And he fucking shows up at her house. Like, you know, what is he doing? Okay. But after he says the iconic line, <laughs> put dinner on a low flame and don't forget the cilantro. Don't forget the don't cilantro. Forget the cilantro. Uh, what? Like, what is that line? It's so funny. It's so fucking funny. And like out of nowhere. And it's just, I don't, that, that is not supposed to be the thing that sticks with me with this movie. But boy, oh boy, is it the film that's like the moment that sticks with me. That's it. Like what I took from the film as a kid and what I took as an adult are very different things. Very, very different. Well, and I think something that was really interesting to me about this movie too was everyone knew that Carol Ann had some kind of weird powers. Like she just came in, everyone's like, do you see any ghosts? Like, everyone knew. I'm like, oh, okay. So she just came in being the weird girl. Like, mm. okay. Like, and how do, like, you have those conversations? Like, how do you breach that in a topic? How do you, like, oh, by the way, this girl, like, has had some fucked up experiences with ghosts and she might be psychic. Yeah, that's it. I guess if it was done now, they'd probably be a little bit more like, she had some sort of trauma that we have to try to get to the root of, as opposed to, she is a devious person who's causing mass hypnosis. I mean, like, mass hypnosis. Really, he really goes for, like, goes for the jugular with her. He really does. So does a teacher. The teacher's you- like, <laughs> oh, God. And you can believe that a little girl, a little 12 year old is, is somehow doing mass hypnosis, but the idea that like something could be supernatural happening is like, oh, that's just ridiculous. See, that's my thing. I'm like, you would think that she can mass hypnotize people. That's pretty fucking weird and like supernatural and paranormal to me. Like, what is, what's the line here, Mr. Seaton? You fucking weirdo. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I have a lot of feelings about that man. Well, and that's why he gets to be the one character that dies in in these movies, right? Because, like, he gets, like, fucking pushed in down an elevator shaft. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. And decomposes Um, very, very quick. (laughs) Right? I know. I was like, oh, someone just Everyone does in this movie. Like, I'll be honest, the scene that kind of jumped, that kind of freaked me, well, not freaked me out, but, like, grossed me out a little bit, was when Tangina, I guess, dies and turns into the the zombie skeleton of whatever she is oh, and then donna yes. like crawls <gasps> out of her crawls her that way out amazing. of her that was it's so, so chunky good. and gross it's so gross <laughs> When the hand, like, like I, I had to rewind it when the hand's like coming out of the face, and like then all of a sudden it's like coming out of where her breast is, and like just pulling out, and she's like gasping for air. I'm like, this is, this is nasty. <laughs> well, this and it's gnarly. parallel to the first one where yeah. they come out of like they are birthed out of the um the womb the vagina of the spirit world, <laughs> the vagina ceiling, and like are covered in goop and get sh- and take the shower. I was like, oh my god, this is 100 percent like enacting that part, like that iconic scene from poltergeist kind of going off of that i also thought it was interesting that um that scott gets birthed out of the swimming pool and he's covered in like white goo like it's very seminal (laughs) like just like Uh... goopiness like on him and i'm like this is 
it, it was bringing to mind the sort of like goopy ending of of the first poltergeist but then it was also like very semen i mean it was it was gross looking it was like really gross looking semen and then just like <laughs> falling around or around the place not knowing where he's going definitely ties into a little bit of you know yeah, yeah. there you go um okay can i shift the conversation from semen to family i mean so actually no, no semen and family kind of go together what a segue, that segue. speaking of semen family being of semen family well, something that I actually really enjoyed about this movie was the representation of a mixed family. Mm. I feel like cause, so Aunt Trish is the stepmom and she is also Carol Ann's aunt. And then there is Tom Skerritt's character who is Trish's new husband and like step uncle. And then there's Donna who is stepdaughter, step cousin, whatever. And I really let, I guess like I'm so used to in horror movies where like the mixed family, like the stepmom is evil. And this is a very interesting look at like a cohesive family, like a, a different kind of family unit that is like there's a daughter, but then there's a niece and then there's a step parent. And it's just a very interesting way of looking at that. And then also versus like, you know, there's the moments when since Pat isn't technically a mother, she's allowed to say, fuck that brat. Like she mm. multiple times says like, fuck them kids. And is like we're leaving her here which is such a contrast to the first one when the mom is like very much like i must get my child <laughs> meanwhile trish is like pat- i'm seeing pat and trish interchangeably interchangeably here but she's like absolutely fuck not. Our, like our life is is good enough without her i'm like damn get her that was something that like <laughs> i did think was an interesting contrast to the first one because you do have the the sort of like motherly love of well, there's there's a lot of contrast between the characters, right? Because you're talking about a biological mother versus a, a stepmother. You're talking about um, a woman. The original mom was a was a housewife, and you know Pat owns a gallery that's putting on a twenty six thousand dollar worth amount of postmodern neo abstraction at her fancy okay. high rise gallery. Very quick side note, I thought they were going to come to life at some point. I was so looking forward to something possessing that art and having it come to life and I didn't and I'm very disappointed. <laughs> Did you see the 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 mannequin thing turn in the opening like beginning part? There's like a scene where she's like not. sitting in front of the <laughs> There's a scene where she's sitting in front of like the mirror and it's before everything like spooky starts to happen, but like it's like I think it might be the first moment that we actually see like something weird happening in the mirror and it's that really mm. weird mannequin-esque type thing that's like oh. sitting behind her and it like turns its head. There's like a moment where it oh. turns its head. Okay. And but, it's such a right. a little well it's really subtle and I I just managed to catch it at like the cuz there was like a a sound note that like cued it in. So I like rewound it and I was, because I wasn't paying attention at that point. <laughs> but that film, it has an awful lot of set pieces all the way through. Like, but you know, when you compare it as well to the first one, I think there's probably something in the fact that like, you know, um, is it Steven in the first one is like, you know, he's a realtor selling houses. And in this one, you know, you have, um, uh, Tom Skerritt's character, you know, like managing a huge high rise as well. Like, you know, it's also residential buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, huh. it's very strange when you think that. about the, the fact that, you know, uh, Aunt Pat, uh, you know, she's, she should be the one who's probably a little bit more connected to Caroline because it's her sister, uh, right. her sister's daughter, you know, it's a biological connection. Whereas it's absolutely Tom Skerritt's character, uh, just all the way through who's really like, you know, yeah. no, we have to, you know, be looking after her. You know, she's, she is family. And it's interesting to see that dynamic. And I mean, I kind of felt like her hatred, like, she kind of seemed to like, you know, piss on Carol Ann kind of out of nowhere, really. But um, at the same time, it's like you were saying, though, they're talking about the family dynamic of it. That is kind of interesting that the fact that, you know, as a like, you know, as someone who's looking after someone else's kids, you know, 
it kind of puts that human element of, you know, you know, oh, you're my family. I love you. You know, we're going to make sure you get to school on time and all. We're going to run down the stairs and all. And then also like, you're such a shit. You're burning my life. You're making things really tough, you know. So, you know, when you don't have that literal, like, you know, you're not actually my kid, you know, why, why am I having to go through all this because of you? But, you know, yeah. and then she has to like, you know, kind of claw it back. And at the end, you know, she kind of goes like, no, we love you. Come back and all. Which, I mean, it's a, it's a very strange ending because, like, you know, it's only a couple of minutes before where she's in and, like, you know, they think that they've cured, like, settled everything. And she kind of goes like, well, let's fuck Carolina out of here. <laughs> I know. Pack her bags and go, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of lines that I wrote down because she's like, I love you and Donna. Let's get out of here. Should never have let Steve and Diane send her to us. Or then later, a little, just a little bit later, she's like packing, let's pack up everything that belongs to that little brat and send her back to my sister. Like, there's all of these little there's little stuff like that that i'm like wow th- this is really antagonistic and then by the end of it we're, we're, we're supposed to believe i i know i don't know how to how to talk to you i don't know how to tell talk about my feelings is basically like how she says it when <laughs> the the fake carolan is like I, I what is this fake carolan is it like kane so i was like i was like what do we call her is it like carol kane is it kane ann carol can like like Carol Can, like Can. I know. I was a little bit confused about that too. Well, and there's probably something interesting to like talk about with like the ego and the super ego and id in there. But I also don't think this movie is smart enough to apply that kind of like kind of analysis to. That's like I mean, you give it the benefit of the doubt, looking at the fact that it is like you know a family member having to like you know you show your love for a family member, but where are the boundaries on that? But yeah, the film doesn't really do the legwork to get to that point, and as well because she goes, it's literally. I think it, like they're coming up the stairs. It's just before they go up the stairs where she's like, you know, let's get rid of Carol Ann. And then like mm-hmm. moments later, just it happens to be just after her husband's pulled in. It's like, no, no, Carol Ann, seriously, we love you. Like, you know, come back. Right, come like, back. I mean, like, you know, what you don't see is after the camera pulls out and you go to the wide shot of the building, she's like pulling the like suitcases out of the wardrobe and going like, okay, we're sending you home. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the, the thing that like I really like latched on this time is how much no one seems to like Carol Ann. Like other than other than Bruce, because like you have like Donna who, you know, she gets caught on the phone. She's like, I'm brat sitting and she's not even a relative. Like you have that kind of bitchy line. And then you have like Marcy, this one little character that's like the most annoying snot that's like Scott's sister. And she's like, well, there's that there's that snot Donna and her yucky little cousin. Like, (laughs) who the fuck are you, kid? God, I wanted to feed her to that to that machine <laughs> or to like right? the, the mirrors. It's like get her out of there. <laughs> but like, well, it, it's interesting that that Bruce. You, I think I think you kind of mentioned this, Richard. That, that Bruce is the only one who has like any kind of like care yeah. for this poor girl. It's I know, weird. and she's been through so much trauma too. Like the first one, and I didn't watch the second one. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, but in this one, like this poor girl is just like cannot escape paranormal trauma she cannot live a normal life she's trying real hard like she's relatively well-rounded in how she talks to people like she's kind of normal or tries to be and then everyone's like oh fuck carol ann she's like i can't help it like it's not like i didn't i did not mean for this to happen to me like i did not ask for this and they're like "Mm, fuck carol ann she's too creepy and she's like i'm sorry like is it terrible to say i don't like her in the film either like i think she's just like that kind of (laughs) the snot-nosed kid you know the real kind of know-it-all like she goes with declasse, like you know she's caught insulting people with it, like moments after she's learned what it is. But you know, oh, I love it so I mean, funny. No real reason to hate a kid for that, but you know, at the same time, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. 
I would recite lines from movies. I'm pretty sure that I called people I didn't like D class A. I'm pretty sure I did as a kid. Like that sounds like something that that young Terry would have said, not knowing anything of what it meant. Just like, oh, this sounds cool. <laughs> That's yep. funny because like I went around calling people Carolyn. <laughs> Just oh. screaming the name Carol Ann over and over again until it means nothing anymore in your brain. <laughs> oh, God. I really like the use of mirrors in this movie, both as like this sort of like metaphor, but also the special effects behind it. But yeah. the thing that I that I really noticed, I guess, as an adult is the way mirrors can be duplicitous because you have like Carol Ann in the school where she's ostensibly learning about Chopin, but there's like two sided mirrors. And so you have the people watching her through these mirrors and she can it almost seems like she knows that they're there or she can see them through the mirrors because she's constantly like looking at them. And then you have that kind of like contrasting with Kane actually using the mirrors from like, as like a, a cipher from, from beyond in the spirit world. So there's that, yeah, that kind of like interesting dichotomy there thematically. Yeah, definitely. For sure. And, also, and I think like, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Mm-mm, go ahead. I refuse. I forgot what I was going to – I already forgot what I was oh, going to say, so you go ahead. <laughs> I'll get it back in a second. I was also going to bring up just that, that Donna, her obsession with, with mirrors, you know, because, like, there's mm. the 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 mm. line that Bruce, like, mentioned. He brings up the, the mythology of, like, Narcissus, and she's constantly looking in the mirror, and that sort of, like, becomes, like, a – a duplicitous again way of seeing it because like you i think you were mentioning richard earlier the the really i really cool shot where she's like putting on her makeup and yeah. carol ann sticks her head in and is like oh you look great and then you realize the door is closed and carol ann did not say that and then she says it like a moment later so there's like all these like little thematic things that i think are kind of interesting that don't i, I guess aren't really explored <laughs> in any unique way but they're there yeah it's almost like almost you're so close to making some kind of like thematic but that's it like i mean mirrors should really be like they should be the like you know most trusting thing because they are just a reflection of like what's happening right here now and the fact that you know that, that you know something's going off with it that there's some sort of malevolence to it is just i mean it's probably a very base human fear in a lot of ways of this thing that should be completely trustworthy is not at all and i mean i'm sure like i mean there's plenty of things when you look back through all mythology and all about these mirrors like you know mirror images and mirror people and I don't know, I think the film did a very good job of playing with that kind of thing an awful lot. Well, and I also feel like this is a film that was so close to saying something, but really just wanted to look cool. You know mm. what I mean? Like, it was just like, oh, this is a cool idea, but like, didn't really go further into the idea that they had. It just felt very aesthetic. Yeah, oh, it's real set piece so, like, driven, all right. Yeah, it is, exactly. And it's, it's very practical effects driven. driven. Because like, this is something that yeah. I, when I did some digging into it, when I, I was looking into the special effects, every single effect in this, in this, uh, movie minus the lightning strike at the very end was live and performed on stage just the the amount of of time that would have to like go into planning out these shots i, I just it's it's amazing to me because this is a movie that even though there's no like i would say that there might not really be a standout a standout moment like you would get in the first one with like either like the coffins bursting out of the ground or the really creepy ghost dog that's like standing in the hallway there's nothing of that like over-the-top spectacularness in this movie to me there are a lot of really great small effects like even ones that you even miss like the we were talking earlier with with the, the mannequin that turns its head in it like there's all these little tiny moments that are just really well done even though there's not something that to me was like a big standout moment you know what i mean yeah yeah like, i was watching the film and i thought like you know maybe it's my editor head on me is that it felt kind of weirdly paced in general like it 
Um, like there was an awful lot of scenes of people just walking in long shots along hallways or walking from here to there. And I was reading an interview there with the director saying that um, because they had to change the ending, that the film started being short and to make sure it was kind of the right length, they had to add in uh, or they had to repace an awful lot of things. And he feels that the pace is off. And watching it the other night, like I definitely thought that, you know, you watch it and basically from the get go, it doesn't really have a setup. It's like Carol Ann's there and Kane from the last movie is still around and causing all this kind of shit. And, but, you know, there's no real reason for him, no uh, impetus for him to actually be back and causing problems. But he is there. And, you know, they set up an entire new world of rules and things. And again, it's just, it's almost like every couple of uh, moments, there has to be some sort of weird thing going on. And again, like, you know, if the film was a bit more kind of maybe tongue in cheek than it actually is, um, you know, maybe that would kind of play a bit better. But I think someone like, is it Gary Sherman, the director? Like he's, um, you know, I don't, he's quite a serious director with his things. I think the film comes across in a very serious way. You talked about Heather O'Rourke's death and just transitioning into like the, mm. all of the shit that went down with Poltergeist, like the entire franchise and her like really unfortunately early death. Like, mm. yeah. So there's the Lord. they call it like the. I mean, there, I even think that there's an episode of uh, that Shutter show about oh, Polter, Poltergeist cursed, cursed yeah. films. Yeah. So there's like the, the you know everyone wants to talk about the Poltergeist curse where you know you had Dominique Dunn who was Dana in the first one. She was murdered by her ex. You had Julian Beck who played Kane in Poltergeist two. He died from stomach cancer pretty soon after filming. Will Sampson who played um, the medicine man Taylor in Poltergeist two died undergoing a heart lung transplant. And then of course, topping it off is, is Heather O'Rourke's tragic death at like 12 years old. So there's like all of, all of that going into it. And I did find, I don't remember. Oh, I was looking at the the alternate ending of this film on YouTube, and this was a suggested video to watch. And it was a video about Heather Works passing of like talking. It was like interviews with mm. with people, and there was one on on YouTube that was with Zelda that I absolutely love and proves that she is like the queen because she's like talk. They asked her about the the they called it the Poltergeist Jinx, and she's like. I owe it to Heather to present her case as most honestly and lovingly as I can. I love this child very much, and I am still very grieved at her passing. Uh, Heather died because of an undetected congenital anatomical defect. Uh, Julian Beck died from cancer in his mature years. Will Sampson passed away after receiving a heart-lung transplant. It's my understanding he had an environmental disease. And Dominique Dunn died at the hands of, of a, an extremely ill-directed, passionate boyfriend. These are reasons I do not call this a jinx. I think that it's pretty much a courtesy to put to an end this uh, superstitious... Um, crap everyone wants to talk about the mythology behind it but like in her mind it's like this is a little girl that has passed away yeah and, yeah not a paper headline yeah right it's not some kind of like oh there's a curse on the show it's no this this poor girl had a congenital intestinal abnorm abnormality that was misdiagnosed as crohn's and she passed away it's not it this is real life this isn't like some kind of like sensationalized fiction that people wanted to make it out as being i know it's awful i <sighs> am curious though what this movie is about 
because like your guess is as good as mine <laughs> there's a lot of things that sort of like get introduced and then vanish like scott <laughs> <laughs> yeah jesus if you were watching the alternate ending he definitely used to do better <laughs> yes and like after he and donna make out he proves that they're not real and then they walk off like they pretty much walk out of the movie like she comes back at the very end but like what was the point <laughs> that's it yeah jesus i guess scott's another victim of it all but that's it like they're so happy there so, you know it was like again when the credits roll are they going like oh shit what about him do we have to go tell his parents that like you know sorry he's like trapped in a mirror <laughs> you know is he, is he somewhere like covered in the um the white goo <laughs> Oh, well, and then I also was really confused about the end game of Kane because, mm. like, the whole idea was like we don't want him to come out into the light, and then by the end of the movie, Tangina is leading him Tangina into the light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very. I thought I was dumb. I was like, did I miss something? Like, what? I thought that we wanted to keep him out of the light, but now we're bringing him into it. I mean, that's been like the 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 plot from the very first one, even when you know Kane wasn't even mentioned in the first one. But it's like there's someone here, and there, and you know, she's like, no, don't take her into, don't take him into the light, don't go into the light. And she tells a story about you know how there's ghosts that want to come into our world through the light or whatever. So that's been like a current re refrain through these entire movies. And then at the end, she's like, oh, let's let's go take a walk into the light. Yeah, like, why does she have to be so obtuse about everything, you know? I mean, like, even the whole thing of, like, what is it when she's giving the uh, uh, the necklace over? It's like, outside in, outside yeah, in. It's like, right. you know, just, just say, like, go from the outside window or something, you know? Oh, yeah. man. Like, stop something weird. Like, I mean, could you have, instead of, like, you know, turning into, a like, a mummy and having Donna come out of you, could you have, like, you know, gone, like, Kane, I'll take you now. Just, you know, chill out. I love that she is introduced at a tea party. <laughs> With old, with a bunch of older women, and she's like, Queen "Oh, shit. you guys enjoy your tea. I had to go save this little girl by flying halfway across the oh country." Oh my god! And the phone call on the airplane. The like, phone call on I, the airplane. Oh my god! It just like pulls out to this guy sitting beside her. You got to imagine he's thinking like, "Who am I sitting beside? Who what am is I sitting happening? next to?" <laughs> phenomenal but yeah uh, i just feel like this movie tried to be a lot of things and didn't really know what it wanted to be i think it yeah. wanted to i felt like it was trying to live up to poltergeist and was trying too hard yeah yeah to be a poltergeist movie well, and that's, that's what i think it's about really <laughs> <laughs> trying to trying to be a poltergeist trying to live up movie. to the to the predecessor <laughs> yeah i know it sounds mean but i think it's true i got you know it was so unfocused besides like okay carol ann saving carol ann but then even that was kind of convoluted so yeah. just like this is not a movie you go to watch for the story <laughs> no. you know what's funny though is that when i was a kid this was my go-to poltergeist movie oh, oh man, well, I, like, like it's cool to look at though you know what i mean like as from like an aesthetic thing with as a kid you probably didn't think about the story yet that much or like didn't care and didn't give a shit about it when i was rewatching it i was like when is he going to pull her face off? Like that was my thought when I was watching this movie, because like it happened so far into the film mm. that like, yeah, in my mind, that was like the moment of the film in my mind. I, I guess I had like thought over the years that, that it happened more, that there were more shadow people coming in from the other world, but there's, it's literally just the two of them. But in my mind, somehow that was like what this movie was about. And I, I think it might've been because there are some really cool, there's a lot of really cool, like visual, uh, trickery with with the, the the mirrors and stuff and it happens a lot so like whereas the first movie has this general like slow build over the course of two hours to the the finale like 
you could kind of get your jolts with this just by watching it from the very beginning because there's there's all that little you know trickery and whatnot and it's a shorter film so that that might be why i was more into it but it's so weird that this was like the movie that i would go to as a kid that's so amazing because that's this is so the one weird. i was so scared to revisit this for so long <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the second one i have yeah and like i mean the same thing like you know especially because when you're a kid certain things don't make sense you know the things like um when steven starts getting kind of aggro and he's got the tequila worm and all that mm-hmm. going on you know as a kid you don't quite understand it's just like you know this parental figure going a bit mental again that kind of thing i guess because it was kind of confusing when you're a kid, you really just like it seeps into your brain in a weird way. I was terrified of all the films, and like I mean, particularly the first one now. And I mean, if you guys hadn't talked about it, that might have been the one I would have edged towards. But like Jesus, like again, like you know, the braces in the second one. Uh, even when they like go into the underground thing and pass over, and you get all the kind of cool Hr Giger effects and all. Mm-hmm. But the same, but like the oh, second yeah. and third one, they both kind of tie into the same way for me because um, you know they're very different than the first one. Um, I guess because they've established all that's going on. But, yeah. you know, they have all these hugely, these things, I guess, for an impressionable mind that really get on. And I have to say, like, you know, I mean, as a kid, they, like, scarred the shit out of me. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's why I'm talking about them. I'm not necessarily talking about yeah. them as good films, but, you know. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. We've had a couple of times where we're like, this isn't a good movie now, but, like, it's scary as shit. Like, it can be scary as shit. <laughs> so, like, yeah. Um, on that, that very positive note, um, <laughs> do we want to give this movie a rating out of five? Yes. All right. What's our rating, Mary Beth? <laughs> Terry, how many Carol Ann's out Carol of five do you, g- <laughs> do you give Poltergeist three? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's funny because one thing I wanted to to ask both of you was it's a joke now how many times Carol Ann is, is said in this movie because it is oh a lot. God. But do you know how many times it is said? Every time I say this, you're probably people are probably going to guess way too high. But how do you know how many times it's it's her name is said in this movie? I I do actually know the answer. Oh, well, I don't. So. <laughs> what, is, um, what do you think, Mary Beth? My guess is 126. You're very Ooh. close. Oh 121 shit! And 21 times. Oh my god, I was so close. Yeah, I it it seems like like I guess in that number like it doesn't seem like a lot, but at the same time. I mean, that's like more than one a minute because this movie is less than two hours. I was going to say, the movie is not that long. No. And they say it that often. Like, that's a Let's lot see. of screaming. I wonder how many. Yeah, that is. It's a hundred. That's more. It's 1.2 every minute. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely nuts. That's a lot of that's a lot of that dialogue spent on saying her name. And sometimes, <laughs> like, my favorite moment was Tangina when she's like, Won't you join us, Caroline? Carol Ann? Carol Ann? Carol Ann? Like, <laughs> when, like, she thinks that it is Carol Ann in the mirror. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot. This, and I think that kind of sums up my feelings about this movie. Like, from a practical effects, like, I, I, I was, I was wondering what I was going to attribute to this movie because I think from like, just a, a G, a G whiz, golly G whiz, like, there's some really cool camera trickery in here. This is like probably a four to four and a half from the camera trickery perspective. And then you have the movie. And the movie, I think for me, is like not really good. I think it might be like a one or a two. So I'm, I'm going to say probably Damn. like a, a two, maybe two and a half for me at the most. Cause I just, it's, I didn't like it. My little young Terry was like, 
I don't know what he was thinking about this film, but he loved it. But me now watching this, I just had, I was just left with so many questions. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think maybe a two. What about you, Mary Beth? See, I liked it more than you did. I think. Okay. Um, I think I was so, I think I was so enamored with the effects. I think I didn't really care about the lack of story. I was like, all right, I see where this is going. I don't give a shit about the story. (laughs) And I think I was just like drawn in by that. And it kept my interest enough that I wasn't really like, but that saying that I still want to give it two and a half Carolans because like. The, most of the stars come from the special effects. Yeah. I'm glad I watched it. I thought it was a very fun watch. It's a vi- one of those movies that would be very fun to watch with friends and you just like, have on in the background. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, I think this is a, a solid two and a half Carol Anns. Um, all right, <laughs> Richard, you have the final word. How many Carol Anns out of five do you give Poltergeist <laughs> 3? Well, you know, even revisiting as an adult where certain things don't hold up, it is a hell of a fun ride to watch it and just the kind of emotional trauma I went through from it from as a mm. kid, I think I'm going to have to stick and put it nicely firmly in the middle at three Carol Anns. There you go. Okay. All now, right. listeners, All how right. many times have we said Carol Ann in this movie? That's how I'd like to know. <laughs> or in this a podcast. This movie. <laughs> this Let is a movie. Know, I sure, you know. I'm, not count, I'm not taking count, so. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, thank you so much, Richard, for joining us to talk about uh, Poltergeist three where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming up you can share yeah so you can find me on most things at at rich m waters i'm on twitter i'm absolutely shit at it like i'm on there all the time but tweet absolutely stupid things but um yeah i'm i have another a film coming out soon a non-found footage film called bring out the fear so Mm. uh, slightly delayed with all the covid business going on but um hopefully some sort of release in some form will happen over the next couple of months and uh, that's non-found footage i would say though for people who enjoy it in a stranger's house, I'd say just keep an eye on things that you never know. There could be something sooner rather than later with that kind of stuff as well. Ooh. Ah! Can, you, can you tease a little bit about um, your new movie? Uh, what, what it's about? Uh, bring Out the Fear, I can. Bring Out the Fear, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So that's about, it's uh, a couple uh, go into a forest on a kind of a romantic tryst uh, where the guy proposes to her, but she actually was planning on breaking up with him kind of later on. Oh, snap. So, uh, <laughs> it ends up being kind of Kramer versus Kramer. No, uh, they <laughs> end up not being able to get out of the forest. And I'm not going to go too much into details on it, but it's kind of a bit of uh, Blair Witch and Silent Hill DNA Ooh. in there with it. Someone kind of realized, I showed someone a trailer that I've cut for it, and they kind of kind of hit on the bit of Ben Wheatley vibes to it, which is, I think, oh. probably pretty accurate. So, yeah, that's that's it. That's the one coming up very soon. Well, as soon as I can find where I can put into the world. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm very excited about that. Awesome. I'm also excited. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Poltergeist 3? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can talk to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, make sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at scarredpodcast. And don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.